Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In Podcast. My name is Greg Anderson, and, uh, well, I'm going to talk to you about how movies are made. First of all, I'll talk about um, the Promised Land TV show that I worked on. And um, this show started in the summer of 1996. It was a spin-off from Touched by an Angel, and the star of the show was Gerald McRaney, uh, better known as the star of Major Dad, and uh, one of the title characters in the show Simon and Simon. So anyway, we've got Gerald McCraney on our show, and this is a guy who's a native of Mississippi, native of the South. And in the summer of 1996, uh, you may recall, it was an election year. Uh, Bill Clinton was running for re-election against, uh, well, Bob Dole was the Republican candidate for president back at the time. So um, one of the issues that somehow became an issue in the uh, presidential campaign was sort of a uh, a bunch of uh, church burnings in the South. Some uh, black churches were being burned down, and uh, the FBI was looking into it, and I don't know if they had a whole lot of progress or not, but it was, of course, assumed that uh, white supremacists and racist Americans were uh, behind this and uh, burning down these uh, these black churches. So uh, Gerald McRaney, being a, a white man from the South, of course, he wanted to tackle this issue head on. He wanted to have something to say about uh, just how wrong this was and thought that a show like Promised Land, with its premise of people kind of uh, doing God's work, uh, going around and, and, and doing good <laughs> uh, just for the sake of being good Christians and good Americans, uh, he thought this was a perfect uh, topic to explore on an episode of Promised Land. So uh, early on, early on, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to come up with an episode about church burnings in the South and deal with that issue. And also, um, because it would have to be in the South, um he wanted it to look like it was in the South. Now, the general Salt Lake City areas, that's what we used for doing our uh, Promised Land filming. And even though it's a very versatile area and it can stand in for a lot of different places around the country, um, it just doesn't look like the South, right? <laughs> just within an hour, hour and a half drive of downtown Salt Lake City, you've got the mountains. You can be up in Park City and just have these majestic mountains. You can go out to the desert, um, and you can have the Great Salt Lake. Uh, you can have suburban areas. There's a very small part of Salt Lake City that looks like an urban area. There are places around that look like maybe some old, run-down urban areas. And uh, like I said, just a, a good variety of places you can use in the general Salt Lake City area and make it look like just about anywhere. But uh, when it comes to portraying the South... Uh, the Deep South, you know, you want the trees to be a certain way. you got to have the Spanish moss on the trees. There are just a lot of things that uh, Utah just didn't offer that. <laughs> so it was always one of uh, Gerald McRaney's um, desires to someday do at least one episode of Promised Land in a place that is really a, a, you know, a good match for the Deep South. And so they were wondering about this. Also, just the fact that the Green family is supposed to be on this perpetual road trip around America meant that, uh, well, it, it would do us some good to have uh, a better variety of uh, locations if we could. So the uh, 
all these concerns were coming together at a certain point that uh, the decision was made that maybe somewhere during the middle of the first season of Promised Land, uh, the cast and crew could go outside of Utah and go film something outside of Utah. And so the decision was finally made to do three episodes uh, somewhere else, about five weeks worth of shooting somewhere else outside of the Salt Lake City area. And there was a big push to actually go down to San Diego and shoot some Promised Land episodes in San Diego. Um, a lot of Simon and Simon was done in the San Diego area, so I guess uh, Gerald McCraney in particular had some interest in going back down to San Diego. Of course, with the weather being good and it uh, just not looking uh, quite the same as Utah, you could have some fun you know, doing a, a little bit of variety of filming in San Diego for the Promised Land show. Well, eventually those plans got scaled back. And I remember at the time wondering about, well, if they did go to San Diego, what would I do as a stand-in? First of all, as a stand-in, I'm really not considered to be an essential member of the crew. <laughs> there are those who think that stand-ins are a dime a dozen. You just get, you know, get them anywhere. You don't pay them that much, so uh, don't be too picky about it. But I will contend as a stand-in, and as a stand-in that was very conscientious and tried very hard to do my job well, that a very good stand-in um, is, is a lot more worthwhile to a crew than they're normally given credit for. Uh, you have a, a bad stand-in or maybe, uh, you know, uh, more than one, I'll say, inexperienced stand-in who really doesn't understand what the... Uh, the camera crew is looking for from the stand-in and doesn't really understand the camera crew's concerns, uh, this this could be um, maybe not enough to significantly slow down the workday, but just enough to be an annoyance to the, the director of photography and, and the rest of the camera crew. So I felt like as a stand-in, I was... Uh, very well aware of the concerns of the camera crew and uh, the people that were lighting the scenes. And I, I tried to be very, uh, very aware of their concerns and so very helpful to, uh, to them getting their job done. And I always felt like I got along really well with directors of photography and uh, other elements of the camera and lighting crew. Uh, but I still, I knew that if these guys were going to go to California, the chances of them... Um, Paying my way to go down there or paying for accommodations while we were there, those chances were very slim. Plus, I didn't know um, California being a, a heavily unionized workforce in the movie industry and Utah not being quite so heavily unionized in that regard. I didn't know if uh, maybe it would be a problem for me to work in California on a movie set, uh, having not joined the proper unions in time in order to do that. Uh, in addition to that, there were plenty of other people on our crew who uh, were not uh, involved in the, of course, the, the local unions down in California so that they could be uh, approved to work on movie production in California either. So I don't know if the union thing was a concern or if just the general budget uh uh, concerns, um, you know, we're overriding here. But in the end, we decided, or we, <laughs> the powers that be decided not to send the Promised Land cast and crew or partial crew down to San Diego to film uh, Promised Land. Instead, we went to southern Utah, the St. George area. And St. George is just kind of the southwest corner of Utah, very close to Nevada 
And there's even a piece of Arizona uh, down there that's uh, very conveniently located right off of Interstate 15. And there is, of course, some scenery in the general uh, uh, St. George area that would lend itself to at least not looking like uh, Salt Lake City. It looks like the, you know, the painted Southwest Desert. So the decision was made, let's go down there for about five weeks and do three episodes of Promised Land in the uh, southern Utah area. So this was good for me. Um, they did... Uh, say that I had to share a uh, a motel room with another stand-in. Um, so they were going to, you know, cut some costs in that regard. But they were willing to uh, put us up down there with, again, a shared motel room and, um, you know, pay me to, uh, to work down there. And there were also little issues like you get a, a certain per diem for working on location. So I think it was like $25 a day extra uh, that they were giving me in cash, uh, for working on location and like $40, uh, a day for the days when I wasn't working, like on weekends or whatever. So it was, you know, it was, it wasn't lucrative, but at least I enjoyed, uh, the fact that I still had a job for those weeks and I was able to continue my involvement in the promised land show and uh, be involved in every episode of the series, which is what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be involved in every episode of the series. So, so that's what we did. So, uh, so okay, so we know we're going down to St. George. And we ended up doing this uh, right after we finished filming the big crossover episode with Touch by an Angel, which was called Amazing Grace. This was the episode um, that took place in Denver and uh, that was filmed, oh, last part of January, the first part of February of uh, 1997. So basically it was President's Day weekend uh, of... Uh, 1997 in February, that uh, those of us in the Promised Land crew were all done with our work in Salt Lake for a little while, and uh, we all headed down to St. George to spend some time down there. St. George, it's far enough south of Salt Lake City that uh, it's a pretty good break from the winter weather. So even in the middle of February, it felt like springtime to us, and people were just really excited to uh, to go down there and enjoy um Again, just uh, the new scenery, being out on location, uh, away from home, which was not that much of a, a pleasure to uh, most of us. Most of us, would do, we, did, we did miss going home to our own homes every night. But it was, on the other hand, nice to be have a little change of scenery and to be out there doing something, uh, something different for a few weeks. So that's what we got to do. Now, um, because, of course, we knew we were going to be down there in the uh, southwestern desert area, uh, some of the writers of uh, the show got together, and, of course, they, uh, they came up with some episodes that might lend themselves well to being in uh, that place. So the very first episode we did down in the St. George area was one that's called Outrage. And in this episode, we learn that Russell Green has an old friend from back uh, around the Vietnam days uh, who is a Native American. Uh, I believe they make reference to Navajo. So he lives down on a reservation there. And uh, Russell Green, uh, you know, boy, haven't talked about my old friend Jesse in a long time. But, you know, I think, I think we, we're, we're not that far from the reservation. Let's go visit him. And the episode begins actually before we see Russell uh, Green. Uh, the episode begins with um, some folks uh, storming through the reservation uh, with bulldozers and trucks and guns and stuff because they are there to enforce a court order and tear down 
an old hogan to make room for uh, the mining company operations. So that's what it starts out with. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you got these people running around outdoors. What's going on? You know, well, the mining company is here to tear down Lester's hogan. Raymond is furious. You know, that those sorts of things. <laughs> so we find out that Lester is, I don't know, an old guy that uh, passed away. But before he passed away, they claim that he signed papers uh, signing away his property to a mining company. And uh, and Raymond, he's, you know, outraged at this. They're going to tear down Lester's Hogan. And so the, there's this confrontation and uh, in, in, in sort of the chaos there, someone fires a shot and Raymond goes down. And Raymond is uh, re- related to Jesse and Jesse is Russell's old friend. And Jesse kind of, you know, puts on his war paint and goes off and, um, you know, he swears revenge for the death of Raymond. And, uh, just how confusing is this already? Uh, <laughs> the thing is... Okay, um, it just, on the one hand, I'm a little disappointed, but this is, this is not shocking, that all of a sudden, you know, there we are in southern Utah, and it just so happens that Russell has an old Native American friend. And so now they're going to go visit his reservation, and we're all going to learn about the wonders and the beauty, and, and uh, we learn respect for the wonderful Native American culture. Uh, that we have there. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I mean, that's fine. I mean, that's that's kind of neat, actually. But it just does seem a little bit contrived that all of a sudden, since we're there, oh, yeah, Russell has an old Native American friend. Let's go learn about his village. So, <laughs> so we find out that in the storyline, what has happened is uh, um, a mining company has kind of come in and uh, set up a deal uh, with the Indian tribe and and they've sort of they're going to railroad them off of their land so that they can do uh mining operations there. And so um Jesse is now sort of the default leader of the movement to uh to stop this mining company from taking over their sacred lands. And the Green family shows up just in time to uh become involved in this fight and to help uh help the Native Americans from uh getting uh the the shortest end of this obviously raw deal. So, <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, Josh is, uh, suffering from his temporary blindness, but he is just a stick in the mud about this. He is just very upset and just whining about it. You know, I just watched this episode with my wife and, um, she hadn't seen any promised land episodes, uh, before. So I'm showing them to her in order and, uh, and, you know, talking to her about these episodes before I record these podcasts. And uh, one thing that we've both agreed on is the whole issue of Josh with his temporary blindness is really pointless. Um, if they had, if if it had only been that Josh went to Denver and there was a drive-by shooting and he got shot in the shoulder and he was injured, that would have been enough. Just to add on to that, the fact that he's blind didn't really add anything to that story. And all it did was give us a chance to, in this episode with the Native Americans, show that Josh is whining about it. But maybe he learns a little bit of understanding from uh, a a fellow teenager who happens to be Native American. And uh, as he learns to uh, accept his blindness, suddenly his blindness is uh, is sort of uh, that ailment is lifted from him. (laughs) 
Or maybe the whole point of Josh being blind was so that we could show that maybe some of the Native American remedies that were used on Josh, as this fellow teenager rubs some sort of uh, special treatment on uh, Josh's eyelids, some sort of mud thing that he's come up with, uh, you know, medicine man type of thing. Maybe, maybe that was the point, so that we could learn that, yes, the Native American uh, treatments for these things are valid and we should have some respect for their ways. I don't know. Other than that, it's very difficult for me to justify the, the point of Josh having gone blind at all. That just seemed like a, a, a pointless thing to throw into this whole Promised Land uh, storyline. All right. So, um, you know, the, the other thing that's uh, significant about this episode for me is that, first of all, we were filming on, um, on public lands. So as far as I know, the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, was watching us very, very closely. We had whatever permits we needed to go out and use these lands, but we were very restricted in what we could do. So there were some dirt roads and things, and we were able to um, build a fake adobe house. Uh, I say we, of course, the art department (laughs) built a fake adobe house uh, there on the land and, uh, you know, just put some other things around, some tables and benches and, you know, a little piece of a fence or whatever to make it look like this might actually be a residence. But in reality, it was public lands and um, they were watching us very closely to make sure that we didn't go uh, off the trail too far and start trampling some of the native vegetation. So, yeah, you know, this is one of the concerns that, that they had. And when I talk native vegetation, I'm talking just really small little shrubs that uh, because it's so dry out there, I don't even know how long it takes for these shrubs to grow, but I guess they figured if we were to trample these uh, shrubs, it might take years for them to grow back. It didn't look like anything too precious to to me, of course. It's just little shrubs out there. But I understand, of course, the, the land management. They're trying to make sure we don't do... Uh, any more damage there than uh, absolutely uh, necessary to get the job done. Now, if we hadn't been a film crew, <laughs> you know, just people hiking out there on public lands, I'm sure they could have trampled those uh, little shrubs all they wanted to, and no one would have been uh, policing what they were doing. But nevertheless, I realize when we've got film permits and we're out there with a certain uh, set of things we've agreed to do, then sure, we will, we will adhere to uh, what we've agreed to do. Now, the uh, another interesting thing about this episode for me is that uh, we had no interior scenes. There were some scenes around the Airstream trailer, but uh, when we went down to St. George, we didn't bring the interior Airstream trailer set down there with us. All we had was the exterior Airstream trailer, and they were able to put a few decorations inside so that if the camera were to see inside the door of the trailer and see something inside, it would look a lot like the interior set that we had. But since we didn't have the interior set, there were no scenes that took place inside the Airstream trailer. There were also no scenes that took place inside the house where uh, where Russell's Native American friend lived, and there were no other scenes that took place inside anything. I don't even think there was a scene officially that took place like inside the the suburban. <laughs> so because we had nothing but exterior scenes... We were at the mercy of the weather just a little bit. What would we do if it rained? Uh, You know, if it rained and one day and then it didn't rain any of the other days, we would have whatever scenes we shot that day wouldn't really match 
uh, the rest of the series. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. It rained on one of the days we were there. And so they just dealt with it. And um, so as you watch the episode, all of a sudden there's a rainstorm and a couple of scenes take place in the rain. And the next thing you know, it's not raining anymore and it doesn't even look all that muddy. So um, just something you have. Now, normally on a movie or TV show, if they do have um, some interior scenes, they'll have some provision for what if it rains. They'll have what's called cover sets. So if uh, your your whole week or a whole day or whatever you've got that has uh, scheduled for exterior scenes, that's what's on the schedule. But all of a sudden there's some sort of uh, weather problem. And so filming outdoors in bad weather is going to make it not match the rest of your movie, then they have these cover sets. So they may have certain scenes they've sort of held in reserve. We're not going to film these scenes just yet, but if it does rain, we're going to go over to the studio and shoot these interior scenes as our sort of insurance for bad weather. Um, so that happened a lot on Promised Land, and it happens on uh, other shows, TV, movies, and feature films, and whatever. They have these provisions for what if it rains. But in this particular episode of Promised Land, of course, we had no alternative. We just had to shoot in the rain and uh, do what we could to make it fit into the rest of the episode. So uh, that was another unique thing about this episode of promised land um otherwise uh, yeah just you know your typical fun uh, promised land stuff the green family comes in they get involved and they uh help people to resolve bad situations <clears throat> now um there was a moment in the episode as i recall that was in the script and then we actually filmed this one moment that was not in the final version of the episode a moment that was, you know, cut out, you know, on the cutting room floor, as it were. But we actually did film a moment where somebody said uh, a line that sounded almost exactly like this. Everything is okay. Go back to your hogans. Now, <laughs> at the moment, I just took it in stride. You know, I don't know how Native Americans talk if they talk about their hogans. Everybody, go back to your hogans. Time to go back to your Hogans. Um, so I didn't think that much of it, but some of the other people on the crew thought that the line just sounded ridiculous. <laughs> Everything is okay. Go back to your Hogans. So, but the line didn't make it to the final cut of the show. However, we on the crew remembered it, and our camera operator, Rory, who was very good at lightening up the moments when, when we were filming and things got tense. He was always good for a laugh. He would always have some clever thing ready to say, which would kind of make people, uh, you know, feel a little bit more lighthearted. So for months uh, after, the, uh, after we did this episode of Promised Land, and maybe even, you know, a year later and more than that, sometimes just at the drop of a hat, Rory had this line ready that he would just say, it's all right. Go back to your Hogans. And we would all laugh and we'd go and, you know, it would break the tension of whatever was happening at that moment. So uh, it's, it's a line that I'm, I'm sad that it wasn't in the final version of the episode, but I will always remember. It's all right. Go back to your Hogans. <laughs> 
which does re- remind me of one more thing about this episode. Now, we did have some actual Native American um, actors on set. And um, either as, you know, people with speaking roles on the show or people working as extras. And there is one moment in the episode where the Native Americans are there and and a couple guys with drums and, and, you know, they're kind of playing the drums and chanting, you know, the I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful. That's the best I can do at imitating (laughs) uh, what it might sound like when they're doing some sort of ceremonial uh, musical performance with the chanting and the drums and whatever. So we had that in the show. Uh, near the end uh, of the show, we do see a moment where where they're doing this. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of eh, neat to watch that. I didn't think that much of it, exa- except that, you know, here we had a moment in the, in the show. Um, apparently, after we had filmed this moment, one of the Native Americans approached the director quietly and said, uh, you know... The man who just uh, performed that blessing, and that's what they called it, is uh, is an actual uh, Native American, uh, you know, medicine man type of guy. <laughs> and normally, the payment for performing that blessing is a cow. And the director, just without batting an eye, said, "All right." Turned to an assistant, and said, "Let's get that man a cow." So I don't know exactly how that transaction took place, but I have every reason to believe that somehow somebody made arrangements to get that man a cow as payment for his performing that particular uh, ritual on camera for our show. So that's kind of fun. I think that's fun. You know, he's probably the only person that ever worked on the Promised Land show that was paid in in livestock. Uh, So there you go. All right, so with that, I think I'll move on, and uh, we'll have another episode of this podcast next week. Remember, new episodes of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In podcast are released on Thursday nights at 8, 7 central. The official show notes for this podcast are located at utahstandin.blogspot.com. And my email address, if you want to send me any uh, friendly feedback, is moviestandin at gmail.com. That's moviestandin at gmail.com of course remember the the information that is presented in this podcast is based entirely on the accuracy of my own memory so take it for what it's worth and I hope you're having a little bit of fun with this I'll tell you more about how movies are made next time on the memoirs of a movie stand-in podcast <laughs>